Morning, church. Ooh, that's loud. <laughs> Good morning. No, you can do better than that. Good morning. All right, that's better. Uh, scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 35. It's a little uh, extended, so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to liven it up a bit. It's, it's more of a story today. Um, Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through 35. And this is the word of the Lord. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Yopa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Yopa. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw that the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Yopa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. 
And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The grass withers, flowers fade, but church, the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Morning, church. Good to see you all. Uh, thank you, Jenna, for the prayer. Very uh, thoughtful. When I was a young college student, uh, I remember meeting a younger Korean high school student who came out to the gym where I was with my crew ready to play some basketball. Uh, his English was not very good because his family had just immigrated uh, from Korea, but he was a really nice kid, very respectful toward me, and it seemed like he was a pretty mature high school kid uh, until we started playing basketball. It turned out, he was only respectful toward people who were Korean. And he would basically treat non-Koreans like trash, cursing, trash-talking to people who were much older than him. I grew up in Korea, so I was familiar with that kind of mindset. You know, Koreans, as most of you know, we tend to have this extremely strong ethnic tribal identity. So it's ingrained in you if you grew up in that culture that, you know, you respect people who are older than you only if they're part of your tribe. Anyone outside of your tribe, right, you're basically given permission to look down upon and, and not treat with the same respect. And as I'm seeing this high school kid just be very rude and disrespectful to other players on the court, I... I told him to basically shut up, <laughs> stop, uh, trash, or stop trash talking, and stop getting into people's faces. And uh, after I said that, he looked a bit confused because in his mind, I was not being consistent with the way he thought a true Korean ought to be acting. That's where there's tension between those who, you know, live in America and those who are in Korea. And it's like, they look down upon us too. That kind of confusion is not unlike the confusion we see Peter experiencing in our story today. But Peter's confusion was a, was a deeper kind of thing, which is what I wanted to unpack for us today. I think it will help us um, understand the passage much better if we understood the tension in Peter's heart. And so I outlined the message uh, using... These uh, three parts, part one, the significance of 
Cornelius. We're introduced to a new character, Cornelius. Let's learn about him together a bit. And then part two, Peter's perplexing vision, I'm going to call it. And then part three, the shattering of old paradigms, which needs to happen to all of us if we are to grow as mature Christians. Our old paradigms need to be shattered. Part one, the significance of Cornelius. In our story today, we're told that Cornelius is a God-fearer. Okay? Now, this meant that he was a Gentile. Or he wasn't a Jew, but he was a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh. Okay? He worshipped the one true God, but not as a Jew, as a Gentile. Right? They called such people God-fearers. He never officially became a Jew. You were allowed to do that. Like, you were allowed to convert uh, from Gentile status to Jewish status, but you had to convert by being circumcised. Right? That was the requirement for anyone wanting to identify as part of the Jewish community. That's how it was. Uh, circumcision, circumcision functioned in the same way baptism functions in our day, all right? Um, and so in the eyes of a Jew, if you were a God-fearer, you were definitely in a better place compared to the complete pagan who worshipped other, let's say, Canaanite gods. But because you were still uncircumcised, you were considered to be unclean, right? You were in the Jewish I guess expression, you were ceremonially unclean, and therefore Jews were not allowed to socialize, especially they weren't allowed to share meals with those who were unclean, okay? Again, if you wanted to be fully accepted, you had to come by way of Judaism was the belief. That meant being circumcised, but also fully embracing Jewish food laws. That was the only way to be fully converted and accepted in the community. Now, what made it difficult for Peter was that he was still working out of this old Jewish paradigm, and he needed God to radically change his perspective. He needed to experience a paradigm shift, as we sometimes say. And if you look at how the book of Acts unfolds, it does seem like God was doing that kind of work in gradual increments. Right, let, me, let me show you what I mean. First, we can say that what took place in Samaria just a few chapters ago was a first major eye-opener for Peter. Okay? And as we said before, uh, the Samaritans, right, those folks who lived in Samaria, they were a despised people, right, by the Jews. Jews hated them, you know, partly because they were compromisers, right? They, they, they were considered half-breeds, part Jew, part Gentile, right? They couldn't make up their minds. So when God poured out his spirit upon Samaria and this massive revival broke out, it would definitely have challenged Peter's old Jewish paradigm. What? What's, what's going on? What, what the gospel is being offered to these no-good half-breeds who are unclean and God is not requiring them to be circumcised? That, that was a radical idea at the time. 
Then we notice at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 that Peter is staying at the home of a tanner named Simon. Okay, a tanner here does not mean someone who's on the tanning bed tanning, okay? Tanners were people who worked with leather, which means they had to handle dead animals on a regular basis. And according to Old Testament law, dead animals were unclean for the most part. And the tanner's job would have been considered the worst job for a Jew. And the tanner's house would have been one of the last places a Jew would have wanted to stay. But we see Peter staying here in a tanner's home, which may be signaling to us that God was gradually changing Peter's paradigm about what it means that Jesus came to fulfill God's law. Right? It's not just me. I've done enough reading where that seems to be the understanding here. Right? There's this gradual progression of growth in Peter's heart. And here in our story today... We see Peter staying in the home, not of a Jewish tanner, but you, you take another step, right? Um, you have an actual full-blown Gentile, someone who's actually considered an enemy of a Jew, a Roman centurion. Oh my goodness, right? God is now going to welcome a Roman centurion into his kingdom without requiring him to become a Jew first. Right, that was mind-blowing at the time. And so there's this gradual progression of Peter being exposed more and more to what he would have considered to be degrees of greater uncleanliness. So Cornelius, this character that's introduced to us here, is very important because it's through his encounter with Cornelius that Peter experiences a monumental breakthrough and the complete paradigm shift that will set the foundation for the gospel to be freely spread to all the Gentile nations beyond Jerusalem. This is the key to unleashing the gospel to the nations, right? The chief apostle had to be at peace with this. You see, he had to go through a transformation first. And this is precisely why I believe the author Luke devotes so much attention to this story. It's a long story. It's a long narrative. You know, we didn't even read the entirety of it. Right? This story actually spills over into chapter 11. And, and it makes the longest story in the book of Acts, even longer than Paul's conversion story, which means it's that important. Right? That's how much Luke valued this story. So understand the importance of Cornelius okay, and, and how it really shapes redemptive history, how the gospel now is able to go forth because of what happens here. Part two, Peter's perplexing vision. God gave Peter a vision that he could not make sense of even after seeing it three consecutive times, even after hearing God's voice three consecutive times. It says Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, right? For those, you should know that the Jews were required to pray three times a day. So it was prayer time. He was, was going to pray, but it says he became hungry. He wanted something to eat, and so people were preparing food for him. But then as they were doing that, he fell into a trance. 
And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. I'm not sure what that looked like exactly, but in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, rise, Peter, you kill this and you eat, kill these animals and eat. But Peter said, like a good Jew, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So verse 17 says, Peter was inwardly perplexed. He was confused. He didn't know how to interpret this vision. So what's going on, God? Right, this is mind-blowing. This contradicts everything I was taught as a Jew. Now, we as Gentile Christians never had to keep Jewish food laws. So it may be hard for us to fully understand why Peter was so perplexed, but any good and faithful Jew would have felt the way Peter did here, utterly confused. If you want to know the specifics about Jewish food laws, all you got to do is look up Leviticus chapter 11 or Deuteronomy 14, and it's all spelled out there for you, okay? Based on those chapters, the animals acceptable for human consumption were those that chewed the cud and had a split hoof. And let me give you a few examples. Right, on the you-must-never-eat list, we see camels, badgers, rabbits, and pigs. I understand camels and badgers, but I don't understand why I can't eat rabbits and pigs, you know? You know what I'm saying? I just had pig the other day. I think I had pig almost every day, you know? Not only were these animals considered unclean, but people who touched their dead carcasses were also considered unclean, which is why the Jewish people were not allowed to even socialize with people who consumed such animals. Imagine that. I mean, imagine how that would practically play out in society. It's a very difficult thing. And so it's natural to wonder, why in the world would God choose to put in place such restrictive food laws upon his people in the Old Testament? I'm sure all of you have asked that question before. Many have tried to make the case that God's purpose in establishing these Restrictive food laws was primarily for hygienic reasons. You know, like example would be, oh, the pigs back then were just especially dirty, so God wanted to protect them from these pigs. Huh? Does that sound convincing? I don't want to completely deny the fact that maybe, right, just maybe there could have been a little of that going on. I've used that argument before as well. You know, uh, if you look at the longer list, Bats are included on the, on the you-must-never-eat list, too. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, I would never want to eat bats anyway, so, so I'm fine with that. Vultures are not included, or vultures are, yeah, vultures are included on the must-not-eat list. But here's the thing. Given that God completely overturns the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws in our passage today, he basically declares all foods clean, I think, given that he does that, it becomes impossible to argue that God's primary purpose was to maintain good hygiene among his people. You know? The reality is this. 
The main purpose of God's food laws and also other Old Testament laws such as circumcision, you know, what we typically call like ceremonial laws, they were ways to ensure that God's people were going to separate themselves from other pagan nations. That was a primary purpose. And that was important especially because Israel as a nation was very young. Um, you know, all of you parents should be able to relate to this. I think about a young child. What, what I'm saying is it's helpful to think of the nation of Israel as a young child too. Okay, and then it'll make more sense to you. But think of what you, what you say to your own kids, right? Virtually every parent tells their kids things like, you know what, my child, I love you. Never talk to strangers, okay? Never accept any food from strangers. Have you ever said that to your kids? If you haven't said that, you don't love them really, you know? <laughs> don't talk to strangers. Do not accept any food from strangers was preached in my house by my parents. Halloween was the only exception. But even then, I remember bringing Halloween candy home and my dad going through my bag to make sure nothing seemed tampered with. Right? Did your dad love you that much? It's not that all strangers were bad or that my dad didn't trust anyone. Right? But the general house rule was meant to provide a necessary layer of protection. You know, one way I learned how to interpret the Old Testament, especially the nation of Israel, was to view them as young infants or toddler Israel. Right? God training up this child that will one day become an adult. Okay? And so their, their food laws were meant to be temporary. Their food laws were not primarily meant to protect them from germs or actual food poisoning. Rather, they were meant to protect them from spiritual compromise and corruption as a nation, as his people. Here's what Jesus says in one of the Gospels. This will also give you a better understanding of how to view food in general, okay? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and it is later expelled? And thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, and the list goes on. All of these evil things come from within, and these are the things that defile a person, Jesus says. And so my point is this. Uh, whether it was then or now, the food itself was never meant to be viewed as intrinsically evil. Right? What made certain foods unclean and sinful to eat was the fact that God declared through his word, like these are not to be eaten, these are unclean, these are clean. It's the fact that he had the authority to declare what was what. And he, but he did that. 
as a parent talking to a child, it was meant to be for a rel relatively brief time in history, right? So don't talk to strangers, right? Don't take candy from a stranger. Only applies for a short time while the child is very young. When they get older, if they continue to keep that law, guess what happens to them? They become in incredibly rude and selfish and unloving and even sinful. Imagine if an adult never talked to a stranger, right? Would you, would you think that adult was being obedient and faithful or would you think that adult is being incredibly unloving and sinful? It would be the latter. I remember uh, an incident at the pool uh, maybe like three weeks ago. I was with the kids. Um, I don't like going into the pool, I confess, because uh, I don't want to stumble people with my, you know. But, um, I was, I was kind of lounging, okay, and, you know, my, my seven-year-old Carissa, uh, she, she's, you know, she, when, they're, when the kids are young, they're very obedient, because if you tell them something, usually they'll listen. And so she knows, and, and Joyce, you know, always... Well, when, uh, <clears throat> when they're younger, she would remind them, don't talk to strangers, okay? Don't talk to strangers, you know? Um, and so here, here's a boy, you know, neighbor, neighbor boy, uh, seemed, seemed very uh, well-intentioned, innocent kid, you know? I'm, I'm watching this unfold. Uh, the boy's like, hi, hey, what's your name, you know? So when I want to start a friendly conversation. Carissa, in her mind, my mom told me to never talk to a stranger, the boy's right here and talking. Hey, what's your name? She just looks straight ahead. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't even, you know, peek this way. What's your name? And then because she's just like still, after like a few seconds, she just kind of walks away confused, utterly confused. Like what a weirdo, right? <laughs> and so I had to talk with her afterwards. You know, I understand, you know, we told you not to talk to strangers, but it's okay to um, be friendly with neighborhood kids, especially at the pool when your dad is right next to you, okay? She's okay, right? So it's a growing process, guys, you know. But that, that's my point, okay? Uh, th those rules, they do apply. But when I, when I said don't talk to strangers, I didn't mean those kind of strangers, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and so once upon a time, God declared certain foods unclean but just as he was able to do that so freely, he was able to, by his authority, with Jesus' coming, declare now that all foods are clean, right? He's the one who has the authority to do that, right? These food items, they're neutral. They're not intrinsically anything. But it's the one who has the authority that can declare what is to be touched and untouched. Same thing with the Garden of Eden. It wasn't that the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil or the tree of, <laughs> tree of knowledge of good and evil was anything like especially evil, you know, or, or different. It was just a piece of fruit. But the reason why it was to be untouched is because God declared it, do not touch. Right. So the food law served its purpose. But with the coming of Christ, right, not only the Jewish food laws, but all of the Jewish ceremonial laws no longer needed to be kept because Jesus alone 
was revealed to be the source of our purity and of our holiness once and for all. Part three, the shattering of old paradigms. The old paradigm that required a strict adherence to Old Testament laws was meant to be temporary, as I've been saying. And it was also meant to point to Jesus, who would be the one who make us perfectly clean once and for all. But nonetheless, the old paradigm given to the Jews that over a long period of time gave them the impression that they were somehow inherently better and morally superior than the other nations around them. Right? They were the clean ones. These other Gentile nations, they were the filthy ones. Right? They were the ones that needed to be cleansed, not us. So you can see how that would make them a very arrogant and prideful people. I, I learned that there were uh, these ancient Jewish prayers. I don't believe they're um, recited anymore, but many, many years ago, uh, you know, when the Jews, they, they pray three times a day. Before each prayer, they would recite these words, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the heavens, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman, was one of their prayers. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a Gentile, was was another prayer. So believe it or not, these were common prayers among Jewish men during ancient times. Women and Gentiles were treated as second-class citizens, and this, this wasn't only true in Judaism, that this was, if you know your history, this was the normal way of thinking virtually everywhere in the world, that men were stronger. And so they abused their strength and they had their way with women during most of history. And the pride and arrogance of man always led to elevating their own tribe and ethnicity above everyone else. That's basic sinful human nature. So what was going to break this vicious cycle? Well, historically, it was the gospel that helped break down these social divisions along gender and racial lines. Without the gospel, you, you, don't, you don't have this kind of transformative effect upon culture. And I understand it wasn't always perfectly done because the people who believed in the gospel and practiced it, they were never perfect themselves, but just look around. I mean, look at history. Compare the places that have been influenced by the gospel versus places that have not been influenced, and there's no comparison. So that's what makes this story so important, right? If, If God did not declare all foods clean, and if the Jews were still required to keep all of their ceremonial laws, including circumcision for all believers, then the church would always have had this two-class system. The church would have always been so divided where the Jews would be the ones enjoying first-class privileges and the rest of the world would be second-class perpetually. And there would be no true unity and the mission of the church would be greatly hampered because we will be no different from the rest of the world. 
So in order for God's people to become truly one, a new gospel paradigm had to be established, and with it a new sign of the covenant had to be given as well. So there's a transition from circumcision to baptism. Circumcision was only given to men. Baptism is a more gracious sign because a covenant is more gracious as we come to the new covenant. Baptism placed on the head of both men and women. That's why we don't remove the sign from children as well. Because it's a more gracious covenant. You know, if circumcision was given to the children, why would all of a sudden God remove the sign from children? No, it's a gracious covenant. It includes more. Right? For those of you who are still baptistic in your thinking, a little bit of challenge there. By the time Peter meets Cornelius, Peter is a changed man, right? He understood what God was showing him finally, and he began to operate out of this new gospel paradigm. It says, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and, and fell down at his feet. This is strange too, isn't it? Like, you have this powerful Roman centurion, this great leader in the Roman army, and he's bowing to this lowly guy, like, who was a former fisherman, you know, not as educated, just must not have been very impressive outwardly. And yet, because he had such a reverence for God and his apostle, that he would bow, it says he worshiped Peter. And look at what Peter does. Peter lifted him up saying, look, stand up. I too am a man. In other words, we are equals in Christ. Stand up. Do not worship me. There is a God you're to worship, but it's not me. And, you know, you may think that this is normal human behavior, right, to stop someone from worshiping you, but it's not, right? People love to be worshipped. Just a few chapters later, in chapter 12, we're given a contrasting example. There you have this wicked leader, Herod. It says he put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered this oration. And the people shouted, the voice of God, the voice of Herod, he is not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So there's a contrast, right? You have Peter, someone worships him. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not God. You worship God, not me. Please stand. I, too, am a man. Herod, people worship him. He's silent. He just receives worship. Right? You know people like that? God does not normally strike people down immediately when they claim God's status, but this brief example is meant to show us what we actually deserve when we do that. Okay? Every person who doesn't stop others from worshiping them. Practically, I mean, there's so many people in our day, right, worshiping either a celebrity pastor or just a celebrity from whatever movie, worship going on all day, every day, right? No one's stopping them. Right? That they should be struck down immediately. That's what it's telling us. That's what they truly deserve. 
And that's also why when we do see genuine expressions of humility from people, it's so refreshing. You know, we know that it's really not from us, but it's from God. Because we know what people truly are, how they truly feel. That's why humility is so refreshing when we see it. It also says, as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone other of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, the gospel levels the playing field. Contrary to what most people will love to think, there is no race or ethnicity that is inherently better or more deserving of the gospel than another. That's what it means when we're told that God shows no partiality is what the ESV says here. Some translation may say God shows no favoritism. I think I want to just clarify uh, this, this part because it, it can cause some confusion. Because every time I uh, close a service, what does the benediction say? May God's favor be upon you, right? This, this, this does not mean that God does not show favor upon people, right? That language is, is present in Scripture. That God does show favor upon certain people, but showing favor and and Practicing favoritism or partiality is different. Right? Think about our tendency. Right? When we're guilty of showing partiality, when does that happen? It's like when someone is rich and famous, someone has high status, right? someone who ha- has the resources to maybe benefit me, I'm going to gravitate toward them okay? and show favoritism in that way. That, that is favoritism, right? You have a reason. There's something about that person, right, that's going to advantage me. Right? That's favoritism. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to completely ignore the, the poor, right, the Afghan refugee, right, just the lowly person, the marginalized, the elderly, right, the babies in the womb. I don't care about them because what am I to benefit from them? Right? That, that's, that's wickedness, right, to, to kind of operate out of that mindset That's favoritism. God does not show favoritism. That means he doesn't favor people based on any inherent good he sees in them. It's not based on intellect or good looks or, you know, I I I was giving an example of God did not choose Israel because they're just the smarter people in general. Yeah, did you know that? Jewish folks, they just, on average, are just higher intellect, on average. It's a fact. Uh, his choice was not based on the fact that they're just like highly intellectual people in general. And so it's not like God, he prefers smart people over dumb people. Uh, that would be him showing favoritism. No, but the gospel is accessible to all people. No matter what status you hold, no matter what intellect, wealth, God did not choose lowly South Korea back in the day. He did not pour out his spirit upon this obscure nation 
creating a massive revival where we even, we still feel the ripple effects of it now because the Korean people were like a gentle, gentle people throughout their history. That's not why, right? God's choice to bless and to love and to show his favor upon people is based not on any internal condition that's part of who we are, but it's based upon his sheer grace. And so the gospel is offered to all people, regardless of their ethnic identity or status. And it's for that reason, in Christ, we're able to become one people, not divided based on these external things. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh these dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances such as circumcision and food laws, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that, or so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That's the amazing work that God has done through his son. The late Reverend James Boyce wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, and in it he shares a story of Harry Ironside, who was a well-known preacher in the early 1900s, and uh, I wanted to share this story with you as we close our message today. Uh, This was a story concerning the death of Harry Ironside's father. It says, as his father was dying, he kept muttering something, and the family couldn't quite understand what it was, but finally they got got it, finally. Mr. Ironside was thinking about this, this vision that we, that we read of here, this, this vision, thinking about the sheet full of animals. He was saying, a great sheet and wild beasts, and, and, and he couldn't quite finish it. A friend bent over and whispered, John, it says creeping things. Oh, yes, he said. That is how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in, saved by grace. And so James Boyce writes, whenever you see yourself not as the clean animal, but the unclean animal. Not as the attractive beast, but as the creeping thing. As one who, by the grace of God, got into that sheet and is pronounced clean by the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ. Then you are ready to open up your heart and arms to other people. And it does not make any difference who they are. Because God does not show favorites. And he, he concludes with... This is a test. If this offends you, that means you're still very prideful and arrogant. But it ends with, if you got in, the gospel must be, must be for everybody. Okay? If you got in, see, if God let you in, it must be for everybody. Brothers and sisters, let's be reminded this morning of what Christ has sought to accomplish on the cross. Right? He came to break down the dividing walls of hostility that not only separates us from God, but also separates us from one another. So let's continue to practice gospel humility. A few practical ways uh, we can apply this before we close. Um, Just quickly, three things. I I mentioned this to you before, but I'm, I'm going to humbly propose to our session. And when I say session, I'm not just talking about the REM elders, but also... I guess more importantly, our KM, KM elders, that we 
eventually, I'm hoping by 2022, although I have some doubts because older generations told her change. Well, that's okay. Just be patient. I'm going to propose that we change the name of our church um, so that we don't call ourselves the Korean Presbyterian Church of Washington. And it's not because I despise my own Korean heritage, okay? I actually love being Korean. It's rather because our church needs to become more of a welcoming place for those outside of the Korean community. Okay, what, what message are we sending when we, we say we are the Korean Presbyterian Church of Washington, right? I think it's time we move beyond that. Also, as most of you know, God has thankfully raised up many pastors from our small congregation. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle, isn't it? I don't know why. Like I, 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 I try, I, trust me, I'm doing my best to send them away. Like, you want to be, be a pastor? Great. Okay. Go, go find a place to serve. Go church plant. Um, go on missions. For a long time, yeah, go somewhere on missions. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was also thinking, reflecting on the Apostle Paul, right? He, it took him a good 13, 14 years to prepare himself for his first missionary journey. So I'm going to be patient, okay? There's, maybe they're just not ready. Um, if, if they don't go, I may go one day. Uh, but... I'm going to continue to pray that God raises up from our congregation, not just pastors, but missionaries, like future missionaries as well. I, I would love to see more of our people taking larger risks and sacrificing more of their lives on the mission field for Jesus' sake. Lastly, if you, if you thought that those two don't apply to you really, uh, this one will, Okay. Another cycle of our, our CGs, you know, stands for our community groups. Uh, they will be starting up very soon. Uh, our community groups, they are the main vehicle through which we foster common unity, right, community. Uh, that's where we practice breaking down the walls of hostility, right? That, that's how we practice the gospel with each other. So I, I want to Encourage all of you to consider joining a CG when you see that email, right? Hit your inbox. And also, we're still in need of several leaders. I think so far we have uh, four confirmed groups. We want at least three more, but we need some leaders to step up. And I, I believe Pastor Jacob will be sending out an email soon asking for help. And so... Uh, if you're interested in leading a group, please reach out to Pastor Jacob. And that's one way we, we can be a community uh, striving to exercise gospel humility as a church. All right? Okay? Let's pray together. Dear Father, thank you that your grace was not just limited to the Jews. Though your grace was first given to them, in your good timing, you allowed your grace to overflow to all who would call upon the name of Jesus. And as a people who have received this grace, 
you now call upon us to extend such grace to others without partiality. Lord, forgive us for our lack of grace toward those who are not like us. May the gospel help us shatter our old paradigms and offer us a new one that would enable us to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Though it may take time, we trust that you will gradually move us more and more in that direction. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand together and give praise to God.